1: Today's episode is all about the first steps to managing your mental health.
0: Well, if your voice is telling you that you're a terrible person, well, let's talk about that. What is the worst thing you ever did? Well, I stole a comic book when I was nine. So this works for thoughts and it works for voices and other experiences. Questioning, challenging, assessing is the reality of this experience, whether it's a thought or a voice, something I should believe or should I just question it? and knowing from your prior vulnerability that when you're depressed, all of our thoughts get more negative, you still don't have to believe them. If this
1: is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. We can go pretty deep with Mind Love. I love targeting specifics and peeling away layers. But what if you're just starting out? What if you're just starting to accept that you might need a little extra help? Or maybe you've just received a mental health diagnosis and don't know where to go from here. Or maybe you see a loved one struggling and you wanna guide them towards some proactive first steps. In my personal journey, I had a hard time with professional help. Therapy as a teen didn't seem to do much. In my 20s, I always thought I was smarter than my therapist because, you know, I was 20. And in my 30s, Sometimes I honestly feel like I've just gone deeper into mental health issues than most therapists, which I could still argue. I mean, I have interviewed over 350 people at this point, but my higher self would like my ego to simmer the fuck down. And then there was my journey with medications. I honestly felt like I was just flying by the seat of my pants, popping whatever chemical cocktails I was given, and wondering why I only ever felt worse. Tired numb or attached and addicted, eventually I got to a point where I felt like the system just failed me. And not just me, maybe the whole thing was flawed. And now I fully understand that my journey has created a sort of bias because all humans have biases, no matter how far they are on their journey to enlightenment. And one of the ways that I get myself to let go of my addictions or my attachments is to convince myself that I hate them. So yes, you might sense my disdain for aspects of the medical establishment, but I also know that a bias inhibits me from seeing the full picture at times. And yes, I might be very right in a lot of instances, but I also know that some of the things that I might demonize a little bit, other people give credit for completely saving their lives. So I like to have open-minded conversations with people with another perspective. And I also like to revisit things to see if I still feel the same way about them. I did this with therapy in the last few years. I honestly thought it was useless for me for about a decade and a half. But this last summer, I saw someone for a few months to get myself through a really hard time, and it was incredibly helpful. I do not plan to revisit medications, but I've also spoken with some brilliant people who have given me insight to their relationship with them. That was possibly a healthier relationship than mine. So even though I've been on a healing path for over 15 years, at times I'm a beginner again. And I've been reminded of just how daunting seeking help can actually be. First, when you're depressed or you're struggling, it can be really hard to do anything at all, let alone find a therapist, book an appointment, and actually get there week after week after week. When I sought out a therapist earlier this year, thank God for better help, seriously, because the process was so much easier. The amount of times that I had lost steam mid-process in the years before that was a lot. It can just be really difficult to find someone that you align with, And then you waste so much time having first appointments with a dozen people until you find one you like. It's kind of like a part-time job. And then there's the medications. Maybe your doctor prescribes you something, but how do you know how to measure if it's effective? How do you know how long to try or when to switch? And is doing that even safe? And then why does therapy work so well for some and not for others? Is there something that you should be doing in between sessions to better feel the benefits? Well, we are talking about all of that today, and our guest is Dr. Ken Duckworth. He's the chief medical officer at the National Alliance on Mental Illness called NAMI, and he's worked with NAMI since 2003. He is board certified in adult psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry, and he's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And his passion for his work is personal because he had an up-close account of his father who struggled with bipolar disorder. So three key things we will learn are how to make sure you have the right diagnosis, how to make sure your provider or your medications are the right fit, and how to assist in your own recovery outside of therapy. And as a reminder, this is going to be the last episode that's marked with an X for exclusive for premium members. They're still going to have a whole premium setup, don't you worry. But I just realized that the way I was numbering my episodes was kind of flawed with the way that Apple categorizes them so it doesn't pop up if it's not given an episode number and I can't give two different streams of episode numbers. It's a whole thing. So just know that all episodes will be numbered chronologically from here on out. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Dr. Ken Duckworth to the
0: show. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for having me.
1: So what inspired your journey into the mental health industry?
0: Well, Melissa, I've run into a lot of professionals who've loved people or had their own story. But my story starts, I'm eight years old, I'm in the basement, I'm making a fort out of uh, books and blankets like every other seven or eight-year-old boy. And my dad is making incredibly loud noises upstairs and is dragged away by the police. I, you know, that was my last kind of scene of him. We're then in a U-Haul driving to Michigan. We had been living in Philadelphia where our family had been for generations. And uh we're in this U-Haul and I'm in second grade and I'm like I think there's some connection between my dad and this U-Haul. And uh, so of course I grow up in Michigan. I've come to love college football, polite driving, public education. You know, I have Midwest feel to me. But I was very impressed that you could move a family 300 miles, but you couldn't talk about it. And uh, this is the seventies and the eighties. Things are better now, but they're not better everywhere as I've come to really learn. And so I decided to become a psychiatrist, not because I was good at science, or calculus, but because I really loved my dad, who was a lovely, generous, kind person, who was also very ill. Not every other summer, he would get very sick, hear voices, get manic, be hospitalized. So, but to myself, I'd be in a bookstore, Melissa, and I think like, okay, I love a memoir. Love me a memoir. I, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. Textbooks are great. I was looking for a book that had kind of integrated practical advice, the kind that I needed and my family needed. So that was kind of the idea of why I got into this. And the reason that I wrote this particular book, I was always looking for lessons that other people had learned. And I felt like we hadn't really tapped into kind of the collective wisdom of other people. People use their names in the book, Melissa, which is another radical thing, which goes back to the original problem, which is nobody talked about my dad's illness when I was a little boy. So it's full circle in several different ways.
1: That just relates a lot for me. I we had mental health issues growing up, and but not really words for them. Like I don't even know if, if yeah. people were diagnosed, but there were some pretty severe ones. I mm-hmm. my uh, my grandfather ended up uh, committing suicide right after he killed my grandmother when he oh, wanted so to divorce, sorry. and oh. and I never met them because this happened before I was born, but they had eight children and all of those children were clearly affected, which one of them was my dad. And I remember kind of growing up with that story looming, Mm -hmm. but not really knowing how it could or might affect me in the future. Mm -hmm. And, a lot of those family members kind of split up. At that time, they were children. And so my dad was the oldest, he was 18. So he kind of went on his own. But the other Mm -hmm. ones split up into two different families who would take care of them. One of them was doing it more for the money. And so they didn't feel wanted. And Mm. so they all kind of ended up having their own unique struggles, but feeling very much alone in all of those struggles. And then even when I started dealing with mental health issues later on, it's funny because I went through the therapy and the medications and then eventually the self-help and I still never really thought to wonder how that might be related to my grandparents, mm. like what my grandpa was struggling with or mm. or what that had even then passed down to my dad. And I, I think maybe it was because Growing up, a lot of my family was so religious oriented. It was just like, oh, give it to God, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. not, not like mm-hmm. there were. And that can be helpful for some people, yes. depending on your beliefs, to feel like you're supported by this bigger yes. thing. But I think for me, it, it made me feel really helpless. Like yes. it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned that there were some things that maybe I could do mm-hmm. on my own rather than just hoping I'd That's fall right. and be caught in this giant. Godnet.
0: (laughs) That's right. I interviewed a couple people that remind me a little bit of what you went through. One was a woman who said she had four generations of depression in her family and a great grandparent had died by suicide. A parent struggled tremendously with depression. The woman I interviewed lived with depression and volunteered for NAMI. And then her son, not surprisingly, also had depression. And he can talk about it. And so she described kind of how the generations have made some progress in being able to have the conversation. So it reminds me a little bit of what you went through in terms of both the trauma you went through and also kind of the ability to make sense of it and talk about it.
1: Why do you think that sharing is so helpful? Because on one hand, it you could assume that maybe people are then just sharing their misery and it it could grow from there. I read a study recently about people that had survived 9-11. They were doing a study on like who was able to move through it and who was Mm -hmm. able to kind of felt stuck in it. And And they actually found that despite a lot of common beliefs, that talking about it could maybe get you to stew in that story over and over again and never quite get out of it. So what's the difference? Because on one hand, sharing can be very helpful for people. And on the other hand, it it can keep people where they are. Is there a way to talk about your experiences that moves you to one camp rather than that like sitting in your misery camp?
0: I think it's a very individual decision. There's this old expression, which I think goes back to the Hebrew times, the pain shared is pain halved. And sharing your experience does unburden you a bit. And in the book, I'm not just simply having people share their experience. I'm also sharing what helped them. Was it EMDR for their trauma? Was it working within their church? You mentioned faith. To make sure that mental health was part of the faith conversation, that you could have faith and bipolar disorder. One woman said that they're not a contradiction for each other. A lot of people in the book seem to want to help others through their experience. Altruism is alive and well, Melissa. People are like, okay, I want to tell my story because it might help someone else feel less isolated or alone. So I think that's a big motivation. I think every story, you know, is different. But people chose to use their names in my book, and I would have a chat with each person. I said, you know, once there's a hundred thousand of these out there, it's gonna be hard to take it back. You know, like you know that, right? It's completely optional. No. I went through something and I want to help someone else. And That was kind of the core experience of the people who volunteered because they didn't have anybody that they could look to, to learn from. And they felt if what I went through could help one person, it would all be worthwhile. Many people told me that exact quote.
1: So maybe that's the difference. It's the difference in whether you are just sharing the misery versus talking to somebody with that light at the end of the tunnel. Because I know for me, one of the things I actually learned really early on in life is that when I help somebody else through something, I internalize it in a completely different way. And so I can do all the reading that I want and I'll learn a little bit, but it's when I am actually answering other people's questions. So even to this day, when I'm approaching a new topic, I'll mm-hmm. go join groups with brand new newbies and start answering their questions, <laughs> even though I just learned this yesterday. <laughs> because, right, exactly. Because In it'll medicine, just
0: stick. Medicine we call the see one, do one, teach one. Right. <laughs> you listen to one thing, you then you you know, you learn one thing, then you do it, then you show it to somebody else within a day. And that's really how it seems to stick.
1: So I know so many people are struggling with their mental health these days, especially after the last two years. It's like even that was a breaking point for a lot of people who had never struggled before. And then it was, you know, just another downfall for those who have been in the cycle over and over again. How do you know when it's time to actually seek help for mental health issues versus maybe trying to find something on your own? risk free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drink com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. How do you know when it's time to actually seek help for mental health issues versus maybe trying to find something on your own?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of suffering in life that is not mental health. Suffering that is short-term, doesn't impact your functioning, would be examples of things that people go through that may or may not require a mental health assessment. Kids have different learning styles. You know, they're going through things. It doesn't mean they have a mental health condition. So when I think about it is there's a series of screening tests that are out there in the world. They're the same ones that you would take in your doctor's office. That's the PHQ-9 for depression, the GAD-7 for anxiety. There's a trauma scale. And these are not diagnostics. So Melissa, when you go to CVS and you take your blood pressure and it says it's 200 over 120, that's not your blood pressure. But you know something's up and you should follow up with it. So that's kind of how I think about these screening tools. These are all available through Mental Health America. And it's one way to get a ballpark understanding of how things are going. Obviously, when you see your primary care doctor or your child's pediatrician, these are heroes in the American mental health system. People trust their primary care doctors and their pediatricians, and they know mental health. Probably there's some estimates that a third to half of all primary care work relates to mental health directly. So that's another way to do it. But the way I think about it is functioning problems over time. Weeks, not days or hours, and severity of symptoms. So if you're only sleeping two hours a night for weeks at a time, you know, that's something to really attend to.
1: When I was seeking help for mental health issues in my 20s, I did ask my general practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I find that there's a lot of flaws in that. For me, Mm. it's kind of left me a little bit jaded because... Mm. It's very rare that I've seen a doctor that spends more than a couple of minutes in that room with me. They have
0: so much pressure on them, yes.
1: Yeah, and the amount of times that, (laughs) I would say 90% of the doctors I've ever seen, like, They need an acting class or something to make it look like they're interested, (laughs) like anything, rather than just like, oh, new input, let me output what I know, let me prescribe this. And we know that so many of these things are over-prescribed. And some of the things I've read have attributed that to it being the general practitioners that are doing the diagnosing because they don't know well enough. They haven't had a 60-minute conversation right. several weeks in a row to really find out what's going on. And, and I've, there's also been a few episodes that have come up where people have talked about the downfalls of the DSM or really yes, the, of the course. gaps of it. And I know you touch it's on that in your book driven. as well. symptom-driven. I
0: find the whole thing humbling. And I know you had the woman who wrote the book about being misdiagnosed in large measure by her primary care person. What I would say is if you're coming back to a primary care person a second time, you should consider seeing a mental health specialist. It's a person who's gotten more training in making a diagnosis and has the time, as you said, Melissa, to listen to you and make an assessment. Primary care serves an important function. Some people are pretty straightforward. They respond to simple interventions, but the more complex it is, the more important it is to see a mental health professional. And
1: so if you are then prescribe something. How do you assess, like, is this actually working for me versus not? Because almost every medication has also different side effects. I remember one of the first depression medications I was prescribed. It took me weeks to even realize, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is making me sleep all the time. I just thought I was in college, you
0: know? Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I thought it was a few all-nighters in college. Right. So when you get a prescription for a medicine, you should have an understanding of what symptoms you're trying to address. So what are the target symptoms? So if the target symptom is a lack of energy, concentration, feeling teary all the time, those are things that you should keep an eye on. Again, the field is not full of biomarkers. You can't do a blood test and say, you are less depressed, you are less anxious, you are less manic. So it does require require some kind of self-observation and observation with people who love you, if you're open to that, and with practitioners. So I think it's freely uh, admitted, all medicines have side effects. And I think that it's very important to recognize that when you're taking a medicine, you're taking it for specific reasons. You're trying to help with specific target symptoms. So one of the things I encourage people to do is, let's say, let's look at the target symptoms. Is it voices? Is it the feeling of uh, feeling manic, feeling high? Feeling like my judgment is poor and I'm doing impulsive things that I wouldn't usually do. Is that the symptom we're going for? What's the symptom pattern I'm looking to attend to? Medicines are just tools. Psychiatrists are not paid more if they give you medicines or they're not, right? They're just tools. Just as psychotherapy is a tool, right? Neurostimulation is a tool. These tools should be working for you. You shouldn't take a medicine if you don't understand why you're taking it. And you shouldn't take a medicine if you're having a lot of side effects without talking to somebody. And making sense of them. And so
1: say you you decide, this medication might not be right for me. It's not really treating these specific things that I wanted. Or maybe the side effects are stronger or like more impactful than what you were hoping for. Yeah. And you want to try something else. How long do you recommend being on each one to really get a feel for them? And then does there need to be a gap between medications to like let it out of your system and start a new one?
0: Yeah. Well, my strategy is I really try to create a relationship where a person tells me that they've stopped taking their medicine. Uh, It's common for people to stop their medicine and not tell their practitioners that they think that I think that they're supposed to be doing what I tell them. I'm trying to listen to them and work with them. And the whole idea is I'm only trying to help you solve whatever concern you're attending to. So the first thing is to create an upper relationship with your practitioner that if you're not taking your medicine, you tell the practitioner. And the practitioner then doesn't say, you are bad, you're not taking your medicine. The practitioner says, okay, that's really good to know. When did you stop it? What were the side effects you were having? I wonder if there's a different approach that we could take together. Do you want to do more psychotherapy either with me or someone else? Is there an alternative approach that you might feel better about, right? So this is the problem solving. So people are not biological boxes, right? We're trying to problem solve let's just take depression as an example there's probably several kinds of depression at a biological level we're viewing their description you know people's description of it we don't have a biological handle on it underneath there's a lot of research being done to get us there but we're not there so what i say to somebody is okay that didn't work duly noted let's if you want to try another medicine from a different class to address these specific symptoms sleeplessness hopelessness even suicidal thinking Let's take on a medicine from a different class, one that might have different effects and side effects. So we're still not at a place where we can do precision medicine, Melissa. We're not there where you can draw a blood test and say, oh, you need medicine B. We're not there yet. And it's important to just be honest about that.
1: So recently in the news, there was a bunch of trending articles on almost every news site that talked about the theory about a chemical imbalance in our Mm. brains with depression is not true. And some of the articles, depending on the source, gave that different meanings than other ones. Yeah. And some of the meanings, or at least the questions that were coming up for people was, well, what are these medications even doing if it's not treating some sort of chemical imbalance? Right. How would you answer
0: that? So there's 100 billion neurons in the brain. And the idea that it's a chemical imbalance that, for instance, has you light on one or two neurochemicals, is a simplification, so it's a metaphor. It's one way to understand it. Just as people might say, okay, the brain is a computer, and we're trying to reset it by doing neurostimulation or even shock treatment. We're trying to reset your computer. What are we doing? We're using metaphors based on things that are in our lives to try to make sense of it. The truth is we don't really know how medicines work. That's the truth. There are theories, there's a lot of theories, but we can't really say. What was interesting to me in that study is it didn't say that they didn't work. It also doesn't say that lithium is ineffective. It also doesn't say that antipsychotics don't help with voices. We have to be humble about the fact that we don't really know how treatments work. We don't really know how DBT works, which saves lives. It's been randomized controlled trial. It's a coping strategy for people who self-harm. How does it work neurobiologically? Well, people learn new behaviors. They learn alternative coping strategies. How do you understand that on a neurobiological level? I think it's above our pay grade. We do know that these things work though for most people, most of the time. And to me, I've never been a big one on the chemical imbalance theory or the resetting your computer metaphor. Cause I always felt like once you hit a hundred billion neurons, it's just so complicated. The number of connections, it's just so complicated. What we observe is these treatments often work for many people Some of the time. And that's what we have. So I never went long on the metaphor, but I think it was one way to explain it to people to simplify it.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I'm not sure if it was in that actual study or maybe just one of the sources that I had found, it was also linking information that a lot of people who end up on, well, people that are prescribed psychiatric medications actually have higher rates of suicide. But part of me was questioning, wondering, is it maybe just those people that are also at the point in that journey of being prescribed or is it related to those medications? What do you know about that?
0: More people come to me in my office, you know, with suicidal thinking than I meet while kayaking or hiking, right? So there's a There's a selection bias. People come to mental health practitioners because they tend to be living with an experience that is problematic for them. And it may or may not increase their rate of suicidality. So we know that there's a couple of things that absolutely reduce the rate of suicide. Lithium carbonate, which is a medicine to treat bipolar disorder, which probably saved my own dad's life. Clozapine is an antipsychotic. I participated in a large international study showing that people with schizophrenia are much less likely to die by suicide if they take that medicine. In DBT, the psychotherapy that I just measured, Dr. Marshall Linehan of Seattle studied that in a randomized controlled trial, which is an amazing thing that that IRB let her do, took highly suicidal people and randomized them to psychotherapy as usual or my turbo coping strategy based psychotherapy. So those are the three interventions that we know help people reduce the rate of suicidality. Antidepressants don't have that strong of a track record. So There is a black box warning for uh, young adults and teenagers the concern that a tiny percentage of people are activated in some way maybe into a manic state and it increases their rate of suicidal risk so these are again just concerns that people have raised countries that did the black box warning and this is holland and the united states since they did the black box warning fewer medicine antidepressants are prescribed and we've also seen a correlation not a causation but the suicide rate has increased. So is that our cause? Is that caused by that? Is that a coincidence? You know, these big picture studies are hard, but both Holland and the United States went long on warning doctors about the potential risks for people who are young adults and teenagers and kids of antidepressants and prescribing went down. And over those years, suicidality went up. But I can't tell you it's because of that. Especially if we're hard. judging in the
1: last two years, because yeah. <laughs> so much has changed that's more than so a so much
0: matter. has changed. So, you know, it's it's a very humble line of work. I mean Melissa, because there's so much we don't know. But one of the things in the book that I really want to emphasize, we have learned things and people have shared things in the book that helped them. Why a certain psychotherapy helped them, how they found being a peer, that is to say, supporting other people made a difference for them how their faith or spirituality, how they integrated that with the fact that they live with a mental health condition. People found all kinds of ways to cope and help themselves. So I found that not very many of them got stuck on the fact that we don't know enough about why the treatments work, why these illnesses exist, why we call them mental illnesses and mental health or brain disorders. People don't get bogged down in that. People wanted to help other people. Here's what worked for me. Here's what made a difference for me. Perhaps you could learn from what happened with my experience.
1: When you look at the people that were able to move through or past their illness, after interviewing all the people that you did, when you see the people that were able to move past their illness or live a happy, healthy life versus those who got stuck in it, did you see any common threads? Like, what was the difference This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. After interviewing all the people that you did, when you see the people that were able to move past their illness or live a happy, healthy life versus those who got stuck in it, did you see any common threads? Like, what was the difference?
0: Melissa, I'm a rookie book writer, never wrote a book, but you write a book proposal and you say, these are the things I'm going to discover. These are the things I'm going to discuss. This is the idea of the book. I'm going to talk to real people And a chapter I didn't have before interviewing people is now in the book called The Power of Peers and Community. So many people talked about learning from other people. It was very profound. And this could happen in a clubhouse, in a pottery class, in a support group, whether it's NAMI or DBSA or some other support group, that people found that the peer experience was much more powerful than I had been taught as a doctor. So what I was taught as a doctor is the things we do are the things that are really helpful. And what I learned is those things are still true. And people also learn a lot from each other. Several people told me that when they went to the hospital, the thing that benefited them the most were the people they chatted with in the day room. That never occurred to me as a doctor because I was never taught. That was really a therapeutic element. I thought it was what we were doing or how we were engaging their family. And those things aren't either or. But I think the power of peer relationships was one of the biggest takeaways for me in the book. And many people discussed it. This is also true of families, Melissa. Families want to learn from each other. Families don't want to feel alone either. And the power of learning or listening, talking to another family who's been through a similar journey. It's so powerful.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about my family, and they don't like to learn from each other. <laughs> mm. No, it might just be me. I can be overwhelming. I'm always learning and then sharing, and I just see their glossed over face. <laughs> 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 but it reminds me of uh, I've when my dad was going through cancer, and I've had some friends going mm. through cancer some of their greatest support systems are the people that they meet in those chemotherapy rooms and some of those people have become best friends. And Mm -hmm. it makes you wonder though, how possibly setting up a doctor's office differently. Like if, is there a waiting room? Can you make it more social? Can you put the chairs in a circle? It's a really,
0: really good (laughs) question. I'm sorry. Your father, you know, went through cancer. One of the things that I was impressed by, so I had cancer when I was a young man and I was so impressed at how great the attitudes were. Ken, you are a hero here's a casserole. Can I sign up to help you? And uh, I thought with mental health, we still don't have that. People really don't drop casseroles off. They really don't say you're a hero. They really don't drop you a card. They really don't. So somehow medical things like cancer, and again, I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm sorry I went through it. I'm sorry millions of people go through it. It seems to have a better status in our society and things like bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, addiction, people seem more comfortable talking about it. And that's always really interested me that we live in this two-step world. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to develop this particular book because these are conditions that are affecting millions of people. So it's not like six people who have mental health concerns. It's millions and millions of people. And I thought, if you use your name, you're telling people that you don't have to be ashamed of this, it's ordinary. Right? And that's what people did throughout the book.
1: That's one of the reasons the feedback I get on this podcast. I'm very open with my own personal mm-hmm. experiences. And like we talked about earlier, part of it is because this is my therapy. <laughs> you yeah. know, I learn something, and I like to share it in different ways. Talk about what I'm currently learning, talk about what I have learned learned because I learn as I do that or or I'm the messages or the the understandings are more instilled when I'm actually doing those things. Mm-hmm. And it also takes this willingness to be open. Because I yes. realized for a really long time, I was open to sharing, but I wasn't as open to receiving. Mm. And I think that a lot of people are affected that way. We don't like to admit our vulnerability and not having the answers. And we don't like that feeling of the person next to us who was our peer just a second ago now being our teacher in some mm. way. Mm. How do you recommend people that are struggling become more open to that because I have found, I mean, when I was going through depression, that was the most shutdown period of my life. Yes. So it can be extra difficult to kind of open up to that community support.
0: Well, first of all, the best doctors are the ones who will say, I don't know. So that's just one little factoid, right? They don't really teach you that in medical school. They fill you full of information, but they don't actually say it's okay not to know because the truth is a lot we don't know. So when a person's depressed, right, they're struggling with energy and activation, so it's not really fair to say to them, well, why don't you just go out and exercise and join a support group, right? The idea is at some point along your journey, depression recurs for about half of people. We don't know why. Like you have an episode of depression, half of people will have another one. We don't know why. So the idea would be after the first episode, you can problem solve. Well, maybe I would do well with this group of people, or maybe I'd like to contribute in this way. Or maybe I want to make sure that I'm connected to people who know what this is like. And the National Alliance on Mental Illness is the largest group across the country. There's 700 affiliates. There's programs for peers and families and youth all across America. But there's other groups, too. There's the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. There's addiction groups, some that are based in higher power belief and some that are not. And I think the idea is when you have the energy or when you have someone in your life who's willing to help you, you can find support and people like you. I think it really reduces shame and isolation to be part of a larger group, which is why cancer support groups are successful. I'm going through this terrible thing, but I don't want to feel alone. And we're getting there in mental health. We're really getting there. I think we're so close.
1: I have found that I almost felt like I was helping myself more when I started to integrate some of the self-help tools I learned from books. Mm. And through my whole journey of understanding mental health, I'll I'll tell you how it went. (laughs) It went from being prescribed a bunch of different things, things that did not work. Mm -hmm. Then something that I found that I liked, I ended up and I'm going to do air quotes with liked because I was also in college struggling with an eating disorder and mm-hmm. I found that it curbed my appetite. And so all of mm. a sudden that was the depression mechanism that worked for me because it had mm. this other benefit.
0: So the side uh, effect was working in the service of your other vulnerability.
1: Yes. And so it ended up becoming more of a, an obsession around that. Like that's mm. why I took it. It wasn't for my mental health anymore, which is probably making my mental health issues even worse. And so I went on and off medications for quite a while Ended up being prescribed Adderall for ADD. That mm-hmm. also curbed my appetite a lot. That mm-hmm. became a huge crutch for me. But then I started actually finding things that helped myself. And, and part of it was going to yoga for the first time. And it was mm-hmm. that community support we're talking about because mm-hmm. I was surrounded by a different group of friends. I did yoga teacher training, and then we were actually working towards something that was good for our minds and our bodies and then I slowly started to wean myself off of the medications. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I like to bring on professionals like you is I know I can be very biased against medications because my experience was the moment I finally got off of them was when my healing really started to help. But mm-hmm. with my whole story, I can tell you how much they were wrapped up into all of my other disorders, <laughs> I'll call them. But those little things like like understanding that a thought isn't truth or that I can, mm. you know, a thought is temporary or that even a feeling is temporary, even when depression comes back, because it has a few times yes. in my self-help journey, I at least have the tools to reach for. Yes. And I feel like when I was only going to therapy, It was like, oh, I need to call this person, and if they're not available, or I need to find a therapist. By the time I found a therapist, I had no motivation to actually go to the therapy Mm,
0: anymore. The wait list was so long.
1: And so what things do you recommend doing in conjunction with those, uh, the more standard modes toward uh, healing? Because I feel, at least for my journey personally, that alone wasn't very helpful for me.
0: Yes, And this is the beauty of the individual experience. So you learned what worked for you. But let's just take the the idea of your thoughts, right? So we get depressed. We have extremely negative thoughts. The question is, do you believe those thoughts? And this is the essence of cognitive behavior therapy. So you may have heard of the Beck Institute in Philadelphia. Aaron Beck invented cognitive behavior therapy. Well, I had Judith Beck, his daughter, he recently passed away at the age of 100. His daughter right up, What is cognitive behavior therapy and what is it good for? And she just lays out in very simple terms, the whole book is practical and simple and no technical terms, no word dopamine, none of that in the book. You won't find the word dopamine in the book. She talks about cognitive strategies that you can employ to support yourself. Don't believe your automatic negative thoughts. Don't let your automatic negative thinking become your reality. And know that when you're depressed, that's a vulnerability because your thoughts may turn darker. But separating yourself from your thoughts uh, is important and not believing your own thoughts, challenging them, questioning them. Sometimes doing that with a therapist or a friend or a yoga teacher is just one example. The Brits then took our music, if you will, in CBT, and they'd applied it to hearing voices. This is cognitive behavior therapy for psychosis. And so it's a very gentle, engaging strategy. So you could say Elvis and our classic music went to England in the sixties and they brought it back to us better and more interesting. I think the same thing happened with cognitive behavior therapy. We developed it here in America. They took it and they applied it to psychosis. So the same principles apply. Well, if your voice is telling you that you're a terrible person, well, let's talk about that. What is the worst thing you ever did? Well, I stole a comic book when I was nine. So this works for thoughts and it works for voices and other experiences questioning, challenging, assessing is the reality of this experience, whether it's a thought or a voice, something I should believe, or should I just question it? And knowing from your prior vulnerability that when you're depressed, all of our thoughts get more negative, you still don't have to believe them. That's one example of a coping strategy. There are dozens in the book that involve things from meditation to talking about it on TikTok to using paper plates, this is one of my favorite stories. I had a woman tell me, all right, Ken, so um, I'm in a group. I have two young kids. I have a severe mental health condition. The dishes are six feet high in my sink. I, have no, I can't run my life. Like, my life is not working. She goes to a peer support group. And a woman says two words that change her life. Those words are paper plates. And she said, until my kids grew up, I never did a dish again. I accepted that I couldn't manage running a kitchen. I did paper plates. So the number of coping strategies that people have used is many and varied, but you mentioned a good one in terms of cognitive behavior therapy. It's one of the more common ones.
1: That has been the most helpful to me. It's something that Mm -hmm. I use every single day Mm
0: -hmm. is
1: just challenging my own thoughts. And it depends like that. It doesn't matter if I'm in a great mood or if I'm Mm -hmm. in, in a depressive spell. And a lot of times I've noticed that when I'm in the depressive spells, I have the two voices. I have the one that wants to come in and help and challenge some of these thoughts. And then the other one that's like, sit down. This is bullshit. <laughs> you know? yes. like, this doesn't sound fun at all. And so it becomes really practice of mm-hmm. going towards that other voice, like then disidentifying yes. from that one. It's like, okay. And for me, what was really helpful is I have a bunch of little alter egos. Like I name all of my stuff. Mm -hmm. I recently shared that I, when I was overcoming bulimia, one of the things that really helped me through, it was like I would get through a few days of not having binging and purging compulsions. And then all of a sudden something would suck me back in, never failed, Mm -hmm. about a weekend. And I would be on like a three-day binge. And then Mm -hmm. when I started actually speaking out loud to that demon, and I Mm -hmm. called it my little demon, uh, Mm -hmm and said, like, I know why you're here. This is not going to happen. You're going to tempt me with this, and then this is going to happen. And I would just actually say the foreshadowed of the next few minutes if I Mm -hmm. gave into this voice. And it was so helpful for a number of reasons, too. It's like I could feel it not only, like, me taking that authoritative voice was like mm-hmm. me finding my power for a second. But then actually hearing it outside of my head of what yes. was about to happen and, and being like, okay, so you already know that this is going to yes. happen versus just kind of going to by the next thing, going and grabbing the next cookie and then like thinking you're going to stop at three and then you're on 12 mm-hmm. and then you're in a whole cycle and now you're going to McDonald's mm-hmm. to get like more mm-hmm. ammo. And I had so- a woman
0: tell me, you can't tame it until you name it. And yeah. so I thought that was such an elegant way of making sense of what you just described. Yeah. Putting a name to it. And then many people also described it developing alternative coping strategies. So whether it was listen to music or phone a friend or go for a walk, whatever it was, that you could name the problem, talk to it, and then develop an alternative. Because it's likely that there's some distress inside of us when we're doing things that are counterproductive.
1: So we've talked a lot about the ways you can get help in the standard medical route uh, how to even deal with trying to figure out the right medications for you how to find peer support groups how to even work through it yourself but i'm wondering also this is something that greatly affects people's jobs at times mm-hmm. because especially if they're too if it's too debilitating of symptoms to be able to actually perform well or get up yeah. and go to work or you end up being late a lot mm-hmm. or or absences And I know that there have been a lot of changes in how open we can be, but I think there are still biases, whether we like to admit it or not, uh, about a weakness that might come with mental health. How do you recommend people speak to their employers, maybe treading the waters to see how open they are first (laughs) with things? Well,
0: I don't think it's a simple equation. I don't think, you know, I happen to be a fan of people sharing their stories, but I do not recommend that everybody share their stories. You have to use your judgment and assess. I interviewed a woman who uh, had bipolar disorder and she was let go of her nonprofit where they said, we can't deal with you. Then she went to a large university, has the exact same condition, frequently recurs. The boss, and she disclosed that it's part of the interview process. I'm a terrific worker, but I have this thing. She was like, kind of cringing to see that they would hire her. They hired her. When she had an episode three years later, all they said was, we just want you better. Take good care of yourself and come back. So she had decided to share this in order to learn. She didn't know what an accommodation was. So I had one of uh, America's best lawyers right? The questions, what are my rights in the workplace and in housing? And you can ask for things like accommodations. You still have to be able to do the job. But for example, if night work is problematic for your sleep schedule, for your mood disorder, you can ask to work on the day shift. That's an accommodation that you can ask. Now, if they don't have spots on the day shift, that may not be effective. But the Americans with Disabilities Act gives you the right to ask for workplace accommodations. And that's something many people don't know about. It's one of the examples of things that I like in the book. So she basically found a way to keep a job having a serious mental health condition. And she's found a place where she is celebrated for who she is and they support her when she needs help.
1: I feel like that would have so many benefits aside from just the accommodations because then you feel like you're in a supportive environment you yes. feel you don't feel like you're so disordered or abnormal <laughs> that you don't fit in and you've got to hide this thing so i'm always an advocate for saying to follow that to to find where you belong and to, and to listen to that inner voice and actually mm take its directives when you feel like, okay, this isn't a fit anymore. What can I do? And yeah, it's scary. And yeah, there are steps in between that. But for me, it's always Mm -hmm. been so worth it. So thank you for all of the tools that you included in this book and to this podcast interview. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your work and your new book, where's the best place for them to connect?
0: Well, a fun site is youarenotalonebook.org which has a picture of 10 people in the book and their stories of why they wanted to be in the book. person diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Why did they want to be in the book and talk about it with other people? person who lived with OCD for years before he was diagnosed. Why did he decide to share? These are all great pictures. These people are all really good looking and the pictures are all adorable, but the stories behind them, again, we're back to kind of the idea of Humans of New York, right? The uh, blog and book, which has become very famous. The real people with these mental health conditions. So you are not alone is a really fun website. But if you go to the NAMI website, you'll see the book. The book is available everywhere books are sold. All the proceeds of this book go to NAMI. This is a love gift on my part. This is for my dad and all the people like him. We just needed some practical tools. We just wanted to learn from some other people who'd been where we'd been. I'm grateful for your support, Melissa. Thank you for reaching out to me and thanks for all you do in your podcast than in your
1: life. All of the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash X100. So I'm not really going to give you a typical challenge for this week because depending on where you are in your mental health journey, you can have one of 100 different challenges. But what I'll encourage you to do is to take the next step. I know it can be so hard to take a step if you're struggling. Take a step anywhere, even just physically to the bathroom if you're anything like me. And I know how easy it is to kind of teeter out mid-process. I mentioned earlier how I had just lost steam mid-process dozens of times. I would go searching for a therapist and then I'd call a couple and then I'd leave messages and I wouldn't give callbacks and sometimes I'd just stop everything right there. Or I'd end up booking an appointment, second-guessing myself, realizing there's traffic, trying to park. Yeah, it's a whole thing. But with almost any goal in our life, it's those first steps that are the hardest and afterwards you build momentum. Now imagine if you found someone you really like to talk to, or if you feel your intuitive pull to try a medication for a while, imagine if it actually really helped you. If you are struggling, imagine for a moment that there is a possibility of you not feeling the way that you do right now. If your life was enjoyable and you were excited to wake up and get out of bed again, what would that be worth to you? And just know that there will always be a little voice that's going to negate everything that you say. Like, nope, it's not possible for me. No, I am never gonna find someone. No, therapy's not for me. Nope, this is just my life. That is what your brain does. That's what all of our brains do when we try to go accomplish anything. It tries to talk us out of it. It's the negativity bias that is there to keep us safe. So just gently acknowledge the voice name it even. Like, hey, Clementine. Clementine is the bitch in the back of my brain. That's what I like to call her. Hey, Clementine, I know what you're trying to do. You've got good intentions, but your way is just not working for me anymore. I'm going to try a new way and then move on with your life. (laughs) And if you need a little extra push, reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I absolutely love receiving your reviews. It's like a little piece of fan mail for me. And given that I live in the mountains with just my husband and my baby, (laughs) sometimes it's really motivating to hear from you guys and how Mind Love is supporting your self-growth journey. So you can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You have a backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only for premium members, soon to be 100. And you also get bonuses like meditations, an ad-free listening experience, and early release. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next time.